Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics show that is the veritable princess nutnuts of podcasts. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and this week Prime Minister and lopsided uncooked lasagna Boris Johnson has insisted that being told to self-isolate by the NHS app will make no difference to the amount of work he would be able to do. So it's good to know he'll be running around number 10 pissing about avoiding all his meetings like normal then. Johnson and four other Conservative MPs have all received the alert to stay at home after MP and Crime Watch Extra Lee Anderson tested positive after meeting them and then lost his sense of taste the next day. Though really, any accurate diagnosis would have confirmed he lost it around 2018 when he ran as a Tory MP and supported the use of forced labour camps. Johnson said he will be answering his Prime Minister's questions virtually, which again is the same as usual, though only this time I'm pretty sure I can 100% guarantee he won't be wearing any trousers. Self-isolating or not, Johnson may feel a lot more alone in number 10, regardless, as on Friday his own personal Jafar, special advisor and cursed matchstick Dominic Cummings, resigned with little warning or prep, but then I guess his entire career was based on leaving in a hurried, ill-thought-through but noisy way. In true coming style, though style is perhaps the wrong word for anything attributed to the man who wanders around in a beanie hat with his bum out, lurking around like he just survived a surprise attack by a jumble sale. In true coming's disarray, instead, his departure happened at exactly 5.30pm on a Friday night, just in time for the evening news and for photographers who just by chance happened to be outside number 10 and could take a picture of him leaving, carrying a box of belongings like no one outside of an American film has ever, ever done. It's a real surprise he didn't also shout, show me the money, but then Don was probably concerned it'd lead to transparency about how he gave it all to his mates. There is every chance the box just contained a drawing he'd done in crayon of his ideal lair on the moon, a half-eaten packet of Fisherman's Friends and some pirate DVDs. Cummings' resignation was supposedly to clear the air, which will be awkward when they discover the stench is clearly coming from Johnson leaving wank socks behind all the radiators. No, he didn't leave because the Prime Minister saw sense and realised that Dominic Cummings' breach of the COVID-19 regulations earlier in the year was completely out of order and caused a massive burst of public distrust, as well as some real concerns about the safety of roads near Barnard Castle when people like him are driving on them just to see if their kid can help them check if their eyes work. Nor did Cummings leave due to concerns about all the public money he's managed to get to all his friends to check public opinion when they could have just asked me and I'd have said, yes, we all think you're a twat. 
Instead, and I mean this is obvious, really, isn't it? It's really obvious. You know this. You and I know. We both know this. Everyone know this, right? Everyone knows this. Of course they do, right? Dominic Cummings resigned, or if you fancy believing it for escapism, was pushed out due to the issues surrounding Lee Kane. Lee Kane, you say? Of course, Lee Kane. Everyone knows Lee Kane. You know Lee Kane. Lee. Bloody Lee Kane. That man that no one's ever heard of and looks like something you'd be able to get removed on the NHS. You know, Lee Kane. Kane was Downing Street Director of Communications. Yes, I know. They actually had one of those for that torrent of vagaries they've been putting out for the past year. Unbelievable. Really, Lee Kane as Downing Street Director of Communications makes Kane, in some ways, a more avant-garde director than Marcel Duchamp, just without any intent to impress the mind or artistic talent. In fact, Kane was previously most well-known, though I realise that no one, including me, still has any idea who he is, for his time at the Daily Mirror where he dressed up as a chicken just before the 2010 election and followed then-candidate for Prime Minister and extra for the munch-bunch David Cameron, putting forward a philosophical dilemma of just who exactly was the bigger cock. Apparently, Kane was one of Dominic Cummings' pals, because, you know, turds of a feather and all that, and was being pitched as a possible selection for the Downing Street Chief of Staff, because who better to be in charge of people than someone who barely seems to be one? But Boris Johnson's fiancée and stuck animorph Carrie Simmons said she was uncomfortable with the idea, and much to everyone's surprise, the Prime Minister actually paid attention to her lack of consent. As we all know, British democracy works on the basis of the Prime Minister's unelected partner's views, because this nation willingly voted in someone they thought would best represent the willy of the people. And now the papers are filled with stupid internal gossip about behind the scenes of Number 10 and the Prime Minister's personal life of the kind Johnson was sure the public weren't interested in just last year when they involved him shouting at his girlfriend so loudly the police were called. They're still not especially interested, especially when the details involve hearing about Dominic Cummings referring to Carrie Simmons as Princess Nutnuts, because, as we all know, he's a creative genius, you know, if you're in year six. How can he be even shit at nicknames? I mean, off the top of my head, for Carrie Simmons, I'd at least have gone with Cheeks McTwatterson, Carrie Gammons, Bojokes Horsewoman, or Carry On Interrupting. And those are shit, but I've spent zero time on them, and they're still better than Princess Nutnuts, and I'm not meant to be a creative genius. Maybe Cummings is just tied to three-word slogans and his supposed gift with words is actually a hindrance if he ever wants to write a quatrain poem or, you know, have a conversation without sounding deranged. Sorry, I mean, sound like a genius, obviously. It's that sort of bullying that has apparently led to Johnson to change his entire personality that we know of and support his current life partner of about ten minutes, instead pushing away the man who's dictated every stumble of his premiership so far. I'm not saying it's not believable, but when you're known for impregnating women then running away, the only way Johnson would suddenly stand by one of his future wives now is because long-term Covid effects mean he's too slow to run away without losing his breath. One of the other tidbits of information in amongst this gossip fest mentioned how Cummings' favourite gesture in conversations was to pull the pin on an imaginary hand grenade and then throw it over his shoulder as he left the room, causing everyone to brace. Did they? Why? It's so pathetically childish and would only be even vaguely respectable if, as the imaginary grenade exploded, Cummings was able to fire on cue every time and then run out and close the door. That would be intimidating. Fact. Instead of playground politics, it's better to note the language being used about this Cummings aftermath. That this is Johnson's chance to reset the government, except he'll still be in it. So turning it off and turning it on again just means the malware gets a little breather from its busy schedule of ruining everything. 
Some of the rest of the weekend newspaper tittle-tattle involved a senior Tory minister telling the Sunday Times that if left to his own devices, Boris Johnson just wanders off from decisions to read Pliny or Pericles or eat or shag, in one of those sentences where the second half really negates the first entirely. Pliny the Elder, of course, was a believer in science, the younger in law and Pericles in democracy, so I'm guessing Johnson mostly eats and shags then. A piece in The Guardian says it's known that the Prime Minister just agrees with whoever he spoke to last, which was often Dominic Cummings. And once again, you wonder why anyone ever backed Johnson to be in charge of anything, and also why no one has bought him a parakeet for his office with a pre-learned collection of phrases that could ruin him, such as, have a snap election, or eat the silica gel. Now Dominic Cummings is gone, though, we can all pretend that Boris Johnson has eschewed the vote-leave hard-right politics and will instead embrace his more liberal character. You know, the one that said Muslim women in burqas look like letterboxes and who helped a friend hire someone to beat up a journalist. Cummings, meanwhile, gets to have absolutely no accountability for Brexit whatsoever and can instead spend his days trying to develop an AI that might actually befriend him and doesn't just ignore his calls. There are rumours that the Prime Minister could have a role in government again for former Chancellor and one of the main M&M characters, Sajid Javid, which would be nice for Johnson to have a chief of staff who runs off on holiday instead of dealing with an issue at exactly the same time he does. So who will replace Dominic Cummings then? Someone worse, probably. There'll be a big announcement about the hiring of the ghost of Rasputin, Jake Paul, or whoever made that Oscar Pistorius documentary. Johnson is set to announce a whole load of new policies that will invest in education, improve skills, create jobs and build back better, which is so much of a reset that he's still using the same coming slogan, but has added more words before it, so it's now been clarified exactly what he won't manage to achieve any progress on. Already, Johnson's picked a new climate change champion for next year's COP26 conference, and given the role to MP, who looks like she says rugger as often as possible, Anne-Marie Trevelyn, who's pro-fracking and protested against wind farms. I'm guessing Johnson thought climate change champion just meant someone who's the best at making it happen quickly. Everything will be exactly the same, except we'll be told it's all different, and the only major change is that several journalists will have lost their official government source, but I'm sure they could just make up their own leaked intel by trying to imagine what the worst possible outcome would be, and if Johnson was likely to be eating or shagging when the decision was made. Meanwhile, Johnson conveniently doesn't have to meet anyone to answer any questions about any of it for at least 14 days, as definitive proof that Cummings leaving didn't clear the air much, or there wouldn't be five ministers stuck at home right now. Lots of people don't believe that Johnson's actually been told to self-isolate, not least because it's unlikely that sloth that's had its hair done, Dido Harding, would be able to trace the MPs even if her and her team of zero-hours untrained schoolchildren were handed photos of them all together. One such pic of Johnson standing next to Lee Anderson exists, and when it was criticised that they weren't standing two metres away from each other, the number 10 spokesperson said it was fine, as they were side by side, instead of face by face. And you know how air works, it just doesn't go horizontally, of course. So that's great news for the reopening of the line dancing industry. Or, you know, firing squads. That feeling you get when there's something behind you but you don't see anything there, and leader of the House of Commons, Jacob Rees-Mogg, has changed his mind on allowing MPs to take part in Commons debates via video link-up, having previously said it was not an effective way to hold the government to account. Oh wait, hang on, maybe he was in favour of it. Mogg says it's due to MPs who are being treated for cancer not being able to attend a debate on the illness, but it's also very aptly timed for the Prime Minister's absence too. Mogg says he's urgently exploring how to do it, which shouldn't take that much effort considering that Zoom exists, but maybe he's unable to see past having a zoetrope of an MP's face shadow while a gramophone plays their questions and can't work out how to fit all that stuff on the benches with him while still having space to lie down. 
50 rebel Tory MPs have formed an anti-lockdown protest called the Covid Recovery Group because, as they say, they want to protect the NHS. You know, the very reason we're having a lockdown in the first place. One of the MPs is hateful Millhouse Steve Baker, who's insisted that we've got to urgently find a way of living with the virus rather than destroying livelihoods, because otherwise I guess there'll be nothing left for the no-deal Brexit he wants to do. The fact that the virus does destroy livelihoods by, you know, destroying life seems to have bypassed Baker's chain of thought. But then this is Steve Baker who said free school meals would destroy the economy. So maybe his preferred action is that everyone dies and then that way no one will have to spend money on anything he doesn't like. A second vaccine developed by Moderna is said to be 95% protective against the virus, which is good news and also means if they combine it with the Pfizer one, which is 90% effective, then it'll be 185% effective and maybe even give you reverse COVID or something. That's how science works, right? Right? It's exactly nonsense like that that the Labour Party have called for emergency laws to stamp out dangerous anti-vaccination content online, as many people are posting all sorts of nonsense about how the vaccine will contain a microchip, though I've no idea why McCain would want to do that as they're much tastier when eaten. I say the misinformation should stay up, actually, as the government haven't ordered enough vaccines for everyone anyway, and by lots of people not having it, I'll definitely get one and I can outlast them and eventually become king. Deputy Chief Medical Officer, and I know I say it every time, but he's a giant baby, look at him, giant baby, Jonathan Van Tam, has said that he would be in the front of the queue for a coronavirus vaccine, which either means he has shit queue etiquette and pushes in, or is very sadly about to be admitted to a care home any day now. Plans are being put in place for students to go home for Christmas in an evacuation-style operation, which sadly doesn't mean as in via helicopter by a team of covert operatives, which sounds really exciting, but instead evacuation-style as in it'll be a shit one. And the government have announced that to double testing capacity, two new mega labs will be opening in 2021. I'm pretty sure mega labs are the ones with all the science, but they also sell clothes, kitchenware and computer games too, and have a really big car park. I certainly wouldn't go on a weekend. Over in the US, the state of Georgia finally finished counting votes, which confirmed unused earthbound character Joe Biden as president-elect and puts him at least six million votes ahead. So when soon-to-be former president and foghorn inserted into a fishing boy, Donald Trump said it was close, he must have meant in the same way his relationship with his daughter Tiffany is. Trump still hasn't conceded defeat, but he did start a tweet with an acknowledgement Biden had won, even if the rest of the tweet said it was by cheating, which isn't true. Still, everyone took this to mean Trump knew he'd lost, and I think there's something really poetic about the world willfully misinterpreting what he's said to change its meaning. In other news, the Department of Transport have approved a plan to build a tunnel by Stonehenge that goes against recommendation of planning officials and campaigners say will damage the foundations of the heritage. But actually, I think the tunnel plans honour Stonehenge properly, you know, in that no one really knows why they're happening and probably never will. And lastly, Labour leader and shoehorn with a face, Keir Starmer, featured on Desert Island Discs, insisting his music choices weren't picked by a focus group, which is probably because they'd have picked something more interesting and authentic. Starmer's choice of book was a detailed atlas, hopefully with shipping lanes, so I can get myself off this island. But it's not certain if he was playing the game at the time or just laying out his plans to abstain from parliamentary votes, even more successfully in future. Hey, 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 Parpol Broads. Um, I hope you are doing okay in this week that is greyer than John Major's face in a film noir. Um, This past weekend was the first one in six months uh, where I woke up on a Saturday morning with the aim of continuing to be all healthy and going for a run. And I instead went, no, fuck that, and stayed in my pyjamas. If I'd known just how invigorating and energising that would make me, I would never have started running in the first place. Um, I definitely recommend it. I call it my fuck you Zeus plan, and I hope you can use it very, very wisely. You basically look out the window and go, no. 
Um, right, look, I usually waffle on for ages in this bit, don't I? But um, while I've, I've got loads to tell you about, I, I could talk for a long time about how my daughter's Baby Shark magazine has a comic strip about Baby Shark going to the beach and needing a rubber ring for swimming, which is the sort of logic that's really flummoxed me. Is a shark? What the? What are you doing? He's on the beach, but he's not dying, really. Anyway, look, instead, um, let's make this week's show a lot more reasonable length uh, than the last few. They've all been very long. I'm very sorry, but you know everything. So, um, instead, very, let's quickly get through this. Um, thank you to James, Claire, Pete, Kofi supporter, and Joe for the Kofi donations, and to Harriet for upping her Patreon donation. Thank you loads and loads and loads. And, of course, should you wish to throw your hard-earned moolah my way to show your enjoyment of this shouting, or maybe even pay me loads of money to stop it, um, then please head to ko-fo.com forward slash parpolebro. Uh, join the patreon.com forward slash parpolebro team or use the ACAST supporter button, which I think a woman that I don't know says something about at the beginning of this show. I'm not sure who she is or why she cares, uh, but I'm grateful if a tad suspicious. Um, and obviously, if you can't do that, review the show on your podcast apps with a fat five star and inform the world about this podcast or at the very least, uh, think about it hard while staring at people you don't know and it should just transfer into their mind palaces instantly. Instantaneously, uh, that is definitely a thing. Um, wow, that was brief. That's everything. I uh, should really say less more often, shouldn't I? We've zapped through that. Um, nothing else remotely of worth in my life to mention. So, um, this week's show has a chat with Chris and Rachel at Excluded UK. And I warn you, not only is the interview um, very informative and at times uh, very moving, as they tell me all about people who are having a really shit time right now, um, but also, less importantly, I've used a few gags from previous episodes in the intro, and I don't care because they're good ones and they fit. You probably wouldn't even have noticed, but I can't lie to you, people can I? I'm too honest. Uh, I can't lie to you. Well, I can, just not about things that I should lie about. More like things saying, like, I shouted, no, fuck that on Saturday, but that's a lie. I didn't shout it. My daughter was nearby, so I just thought it really hard. And then that transferred into Zeus's mind palace, which is totally a thing. Um, there's also a wee look at the recent Joint Committee on Human Rights report on black people, racism and human rights. And before all that, a little something that one of you sent in, and I thought I'd make it into this. Thanks, Barry. Don't call him, Boris. He's not your mate. Don't call him Boris. He's not your mate. Don't call him Boris. He's not your mate. Don't call him Boris. He's not your mate. Call him Johnson, 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 Johnson. Call him prick. Call him dickhead. But don't call him Boris. He's not your mate. No one likes being excluded. Uh, so say I, with many, many school years of not being picked for the football team and many, many later years of not being invited to parties. Both things that now, in my middle age, continue, but I'm far more pleased about it. But when it comes to being excluded from financial support during a global pandemic, it's far more concerning than that kid who tried to eat the ball being picked before you. Back in March, the Prime Minister vowed that the government would put its arm around every worker, something that sounded a lot like a harassment case in waiting and a massive breach of social distancing. Not only that, but unsurprisingly, it also wasn't at all true. Instead, much like clapping for the NHS being more of a final farewell applause, the arm pretended to be a form of comfort, but it was instead a passive way of ushering many out of the door, closing the door in their face and then closing the curtains while shouting, sorry, we're not in, out of the letterbox every now and then. As it stands, there are about 3 million people, or 10% of the entire British workforce, who have not received any financial support at all from the government during the pandemic, not qualifying for any of the support packages or even universal credit, even though they've been paying all their taxes all of their lives. 
Rather than sympathise or understand that eight months without any income whatsoever is really devastating, the Chancellor just keeps saying that they can't save every job, though sadly he always seems to keep his. Or that there's not enough money to cover everyone, apart from all the money used to increase the furlough, SEISS payments, buy an app that doesn't work and a ton of PPE that doesn't exist. Or that it's too complicated. Though to be fair, Rishi Sunak is the person who tweets that he's supporting pubs while standing outside an electric appliances shop. Or that people should find work in a world where there's no work. Or Rishi Sunak says that they can only save viable jobs, jobs that can work successfully. So again, that discounts everyone in the cabinet. And yet, somehow they've still kept them. In some ways, this isn't surprising. The Conservatives have always been afflicted by inattentional blindness, meaning that, oh, they don't think there's poverty because they haven't seen it. Or in Boris Johnson's case, he's been unable to see Nazanin Sagari Ratcliffe or any evidence she exists for at least four years now and only recently was unable to see Marcus Rashford's campaign until everyone else in the universe had and wouldn't stop pointing at it. Most of Boris Johnson's children disappeared from his vision within seconds of their birth. I can't work out if it's because not being able to see it gives them an alibi for not believing it or if they've just hired some pals to be the official government opticians at several thousand pounds a minute despite their only experience of eyes being what they shout to support awful policies in the Commons. But now it's these three million and these three million who've been completely ignored since March are experiencing financial issues and mental health issues caused by anxiety and stress to name but some of the impact that this is having on them. And yet it's very likely that when this is all over, they'll be asked to pay higher taxes to cover the bailout that they haven't got in order to save the jobs of ministers who've been ignoring them. Maybe by arm around every worker, Johnson actually meant it was some sort of chokehold. This week I spoke to Chris Anderson and Rachel Flowers at the Excluded UK campaign, a grassroots organisation supporting everyone who hasn't been given any financial support. They've been lobbying MPs, guiding people to funding where possible and building a really impressive community in order to amplify their voice in the hope that at some point Rishi Sunak might throw them some sort of lifesaver. I asked them just who the excluded are, why universal credit isn't the safety net is meant to be, and just whether helping everyone out would be too complicated or just too complicated for this government who get confused about what they've said just the day before. Here's Rachel and Chris. Hi, Rachel and Chris. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Um, before we start, I, I thought I should probably ask just how are you both? Um, because obviously not only are you, uh, you know, heading up the excluded campaign, you have also both been excluded from all the government support packages. Um, so Rachel, how, how are you getting on? Are you doing all right? Oh, good morning. Um, thanks for having us. And um, yeah, I, I should do that really British thing, shouldn't I? I say I'm fine, thank you. But um, <laughs> in the spirit of being honest, yeah, you know, it's been a tough year for, for so many. And um I was excluded. That was how I came to be involved in the campaign to begin with. Um, And it's taken its toll. Yeah, I would say, obviously, in practical terms, that's been difficult. And I've got two young children at home. Um, And um, emotionally, it's been quite a grueling time, to be honest. And being part of Excluded UK has unfortunately contributed that because then obviously you have your own challenges. But every single day you are seeing and living and breathing the challenges of other people. And I've always classed myself as a very empathetic, quite sensitive soul. So absolutely, that's taken its toll. But I'm very happy to be here because it's important that we're talking about it. And my commitment to the Excluded UK campaign has been to use my voice and speak out about what I believe to be a very serious injustice. So I'm, I'm very happy to be here sharing with you. That's, no, that, I'm very pleased that you are, and I think you're absolutely right. It's, um, it, it's fascinating, isn't it? And I, I've felt so much anxiety myself this past year, and you, you do sort of feel like taking on other people's at this time can be particularly tough. So I 
greatly admire that you're both heading up this campaign. Um, and, and Chris, can I ask the same view? Are you, are you coping all OK? Coping is my sort of operative word at the moment, I think, this year. Well, yes, like Rachel says, to be British. Yes, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> but um, like Rachel, I've been involved with Excluder from almost the very start. Um, I think what annoys me more than the else is we've done so much, the whole group, um, to write to the government, email, even send postcards, everything. And what really annoys me about everything is just we don't get a response. Rachel has requested meetings with them um, and all sorts of things. And it's just like banging your head against a brick wall. I'm a fairly strong person. I don't think I've been affected by, as affected as some people in the group, really awful cases, which I think Rachel will mention about later. But um, it's just that sort of like, you try to say something and the government's just turning around and just absolutely ignoring you. Um, we hope um, that's going to change soon. And we've got an awful lot more media at the moment, coverage. Um, so we hope it's going to change. But there's days I think, oh, that's it. I'm, I can't do anymore. I might as well just go to bed for a few months or something. But then I get up the following morning and think, well, why? You know, you, you've got to fight this. It's just so wrong for reasons will be explained to you during the course of, you know, this morning. Um, but, you know, we've, we've got to fight. Yeah, I mean, I, t- I totally understand. You know, this year, so many people I know are feeling exhausted anyway. To then have to deal with what you're dealing with yeah. must be then exhausting on top of that. This 2020 is a terrible year for fatigue, but to then have to be fighting your own cause and not getting any response must be... Uh, absolutely knackering i think i think it's i think it's um something i talked about very early on when the lockdown in march first happened is we're going through a collective trauma of the sort that has never been experienced before um i believe you know um in not in our time and um one thing that was very evident um is something called sort of the change curve and it's the way that we individually deal with trauma Uh, and grief and loss, which is effectively what we're all going through in different ways. And it means that often people are in a different place at a different time. Meaning as you go on that curve, some days you can feel a bit more optimistic, you've got a bit more fire in your belly, um, but at the same time, your neighbour or a friend is at an all-time low and a despair. And we've been like that, rollercoasting. And within the campaign group, that's been a very difficult thing to manage, but also a very powerful tool in our arsenal because by creating this community, and uh, you know, I'd love to talk to you about this in more detail, but um, it's been a, a, a beacon of hope as well as a very difficult time and so many people within the community have told us that it's literally been a lifesaver because on those darkest of days there can then be somebody within the community that is feeling stronger and will lift you up so that's something that amazing to have come out of this very adverse situation a group of people thrown together through adversity through being excluded from government support feeling on the outside of government policy and yet within the community there's been some incredibly beautiful moments moments and um it's restored my faith in humanity in that way that's really nice and and especially you know a lot of people felt quite alone in all of this because of lockdown and not being able to see other people and and just the the nature of what we're going through has left people quite you know uh stuck by themselves really so to to be able to give people support in that way is, is amazing um and i wanted to ask let's let's uh get a bit into the detail of it really um how many people have been excluded uh from the government schemes and 
what kind of industries are affected. I say this is I, I've got friends in the you know I'm in the stand up comedy world. I've got friends who have been excluded because they uh, were told to have a small limited business, or I've got um, various people in the entertainment industry I know of. But this affects a lot, uh, a lot of the work sector, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's been very interesting to see it unfold um, way back in March when the schemes were announced and very quickly it became evident that people were not eligible. And um, But it took a while for the scale of the problem to become quite so clear. So I would say since about May, we have been working on the data that was available and identifying, we believe it's as many as 3 million people, taxpayers, which is also then households and families. So if you think about the ripple effect and the you know, impact that, that could be an impact upon as many as nine or 10 million people within society. But three million taxpayers excluded. And way back then, the government were, were, were arguing with those numbers. And they said, no, 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 we think there's very few people who've fallen through the back gaps. And there's very specific reasons why that's happened. A Treasury Select Committee report came out in June that identified it was over a million people. And they categorized some of that. And we continued our work. We continued saying it's three million. And and fairly recently, there's been a Standard Life report, an NAO report, um, evidence from the Resolution Foundation. So great stacks of evidence now that confirms categorically it is three million taxpayers. And the key phrase I want your listeners to know is um, one taken from the Treasury um, report, which says through no fault of their own. And that has been a very damaging narrative that the government has put out. Every time we have challenged them on this problem, they start talking about, oh, we're, we're having to combat fraud. Um, there's, you know, we couldn't help everybody. Um, these phrases are very damaging to the people in the community. And I want to be very clear because it is now evidenced. These people have done absolutely nothing wrong. They've paid their tax in exactly the way they were asked to pay their tax over the years. They might have been a PAYU freelancer who had to pay it at source. They might be, as the friends you've referred to, small limited companies who've paid um, themselves a, a POI salary and then taken the profit in dividends and paid dividend tax and corporation tax, of course, completely legal. But the arbitrary rules of the support schemes, the hard policy edges have rendered those certain people, for no particular reason, ineligible for the schemes. And that didn't come out until later. And that's what we say is the injustice. Back in March, when the Chancellor stood up, so many of us cried, sat at home. It was a time of great fear and we didn't know what lay ahead. And the Chancellor made these very powerful statements. No one will be left behind. We will all stand shoulder to shoulder. We will do whatever it takes. I, I cried my eyes out when I heard those words. I thought, wow, this is amazing. Our government is protecting every single citizen. Uh, by a few months later, it was evident that that was very much not the case. And if we take the stats even just around self-employed, we believe that actually just over half of self-employed have been covered, whereas initially the number was 95% will be covered. That's a huge chasm in the self-employed camp alone. And so the question you asked me was, you know, who, who is it? it? It covers a very diverse sector of society from all walks of life. It's people that were moving jobs. It's people that were denied furlough by their employers and left out in the cold. It's PIE freelancers, limited company directors. It's um, 
the self-employed, several traders. And it's people like, you know, Chris is a great example. It's people who fell foul of this bizarre 50-50 rule who might have taken a pension pull down in recent years, or they might even have taken a bereavement allowance and been through some tragedy. And these arbitrary rules of the schemes then go, oh, sorry, you're not eligible because these are the rules we've put in place with absolutely no taking into account of the fact that as a basic tenant i believe everybody should have had their basic living expenses covered yeah it's so incredibly frustrating and and as you said it's it's absolutely no one's fault this situation we're going through is no one's fault at all um uh, maybe except a bat somewhere we don't know but it's there's nobody that's responsible for this and and it's mad that anyone should be sort of punished uh for for suffering the same as everyone else well that's right that's right but especially those who are most vulnerable in society. And again, that's a myth that gets put out by the government that, you know, it, it, there's a, a certainly one with the public perception as well is that those excluded are either tax dodgers or they're very rich, limited company directors who had masses of cash reserves to start off with. That's absolutely categorically not the case. From the surveys of, of our community, we've got as many as 60% were actually low income to begin with. And so many of those people have tried to apply for universal credit, fallen back on the welfare state during that time and being refused even for that help. So it's the policies that have created this issue. And what I fundamentally take um, real umbrance with now is that, yes, those schemes were put up quickly and we were very patient and we shone a light on the problems and we thought, well, now they know a problem exists, they will redress it. But there has been time to redress it. And now they know that the problem exists. And as Chris rightly said, the most hurtful thing is that they're dismissive um, and they ignore it and they have basically turned their back and it's just not good enough. And that's why we're still here, not just fighting, but fighting really hard because uh, from, I can speak for myself, but I know many other within the community feel like this. I do not want to live in a society where our government doesn't take care of the most vulnerable. And now we have very, very vulnerable people in this community pushed into debt, pushed into poverty heartbreakingly we've already lost people they've taken their own lives because of this devastating effect and we won't give up until justice is done some examples um Tieran. yes please do yeah um rachel said the 50 50 rule i think is the highest category something like 1.17 million people affected um i'll just give you some real life examples um briefly well, I'm going to be, I'm going to blow me on trumpet here. I'm going to start with myself. Um, I've been self-employed 37 years, and I took a one-off pension drawdown five years ago. It'll be five years by the end of this year. Um, that's something that happened five years ago, and because of that, I'm excluded. I'm full-time self-employed, and the meaning from the government, they keep saying, well, we want to make sure, you know, um, we only help people who are mainly self-employed fully. Well, I am, uh, yet I still fail. Um, that's mine. Um, a lady called Deb Reese, she was, was made redundant in December 18, <laughs> which is a double blow. Because a redundancy payment was more than a self-employed profits on the calculation of the scheme, she failed. Who were again no fault of her own. Um, Denise Randall, um, she's been a web designer for many, many years. This is the worst case I think I've ever heard. Um, 
Rachel touched on it, I think, earlier on. Her husband died in 2015. She claimed widow's bereavement allowance and his pension um, back in 2016-17. Now, because they go back three years, an average income out three years, because her bereavement allowance and pension was more than the profits, and this is four years ago, <laughs> again, she failed. Um, oh. Diane Sharp, I mean, I could go on forever, but Diane Sharp, um, she had a son who had leukemia and she had to cut her hours down um, to look after him. Still self-employed, she was working and looking after him. It must have been horrendous. She claimed a carer's allowance. And because the carer's allowance was more than the profits, she failed. It goes on and on. Um, is the usual cases of people having two jobs. Now, when I say two jobs, I don't mean they've got loads and loads of money. They may have like, two part-time jobs. One might be self-employed, one might be employed. And the government has said, well, you're not getting this. The 50% rule, do you understand what the 50% rule is, Tieran? Uh, no, please explain. Um, well, basically, it says um, you've got to have, for self-employed, you've got to have more than 50% of your income as self-employed and the other half um, it could be virtually anything. I mean, I think what they're aiming at is to stop people who are self-employed and employed claiming on both schemes. But that's not the case here, because in the employment section, it's not just employment, it's pay-as-you-earn. The, the situations I've mentioned, um, widow's agreement, pensions, interest, rental income, there's people who, have, uh, who earn the money via rental income and they get absolutely nothing. Um, so there's a whole category of income in the pay-as-you-earn section, which if you've got more than self-employed, um, you just get nothing. I'm just hoping the government hasn't realised this. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt here, but they haven't realised this. And um, once we do get through to them, you know, bang our heads against a brick wall and get through to them, that they'll say, oh, sorry, yeah, you can have your money now. I'm not holding my breath, but, um, you know, that's just a few of the 50-50 examples. I mean, a bit later on, I'll give you some more examples of the different situations, but that's just the 50% rule, which is, again, the biggest category of... <laughs> it's, really, it's really good to have the example because it brings it to life of the struggles these people are actually experiencing. Because, of course, the net result of being rendered ineligible for the self-employed scheme means, you know, to take one of those examples, somebody then just has to get by on their carer's allowance instead of having the remainder of their money that they actually needed, they still need to pay the bills and keep a roof over their head. And the stress that comes with that through then suddenly not being able to pay your mortgage, getting red letters through the door, and as, as Chris says, you're caring for a sick child, that's unacceptable. So it's the inflexibility of the rules that has caused this problem. And that was clearly set out in the Treasury Select Report Committee. It said, you know, we, we've done well, we've got the schemes up, now we need to extend them and tweak them so that they fix some of these anomalies. But, you know, then you've got big swathes of, of community excluded, like the newly self-employed. Anybody that set up business in the 18 months prior to March 2020 was automatically excluded because the rules required you to submit your three years accounts ending in 1819. Well, of course, they didn't have it. So we very quickly went and said, 
uh, well, that's a problem for the newly self-employed, isn't it? You can't leave them with zero. How about they submit their 1920 accounts or you let them claim on the basis of whatever PAYE role they were doing in the year before lockdown? And it was a flat no. So to me, that shows that's the best example of the inflexibility that we've faced here. The flat no means we are happy to let those newly self-employed people go to the wall. Um, and, you know, the, the, the sort of the more political response we would get is everybody has received support of some sort, meaning go and make a claim on the welfare state. As I've said to you, a large proportion of newly self-employed who went and tried to claim on the on the welfare state were unable to do so. Um, and that's a whole other conversation about how inadequate the welfare state system already is before this pandemic even started. But the basic thing is that the, the, the party that is governing in power is meant to be the champion of the entrepreneurs. It's meant to be standing up for small business and encouraging us to go out and be resourceful. Yet in that example I've just given you, there are hundreds and thousands of people who took that plunge into entrepreneurship. No idea a pandemic was going to hit. Obviously, if somebody had said to them beforehand, hey, good luck going and becoming an entrepreneur, but don't forget if a pandemic comes, you'll be excluded from any support. Well, clearly they wouldn't have done it, would they? Because <laughs> that wouldn't make any sense. Um, and, and I think you know, what, what, we, what we've tried to evidence when we've put forward these human stories in these case studies is this terrible disparity and how it's then caused division in society. So if you went to a terrace street in any town in the UK, you would have a, a family or an individual living in one house who had been furloughed. And yeah, that's not ideal, but at least they ha can pay their bills and they can you know, take a bit of downtime and they can stay home and save lives and protect the NHS. Next door, you might have somebody that's successfully been able to apply for the self-employed grant, can also work and earn money at the same time. So some people who've taken the self-employed grants have actually benefited financially. And then next door, you could have someone who, through no fault of their own, falls foul of these arbitrary policies and these rules and has ended up with absolutely no support coming into their household or no meaningful support. And that disparity in society has been one of the most harmful things. And going back to the point you made at the start about the collective trauma, we've noticed it's been very hard for people to empathise properly with our community. Um, and because they've been going through their own traumatic experience it's been hard for everyone regardless of your situation and we should also add that in that terraced row of houses there will be some key workers and of course people that have had to work all the way through and um, and so what's been really hard for our people is also the shame and the guilt of feeling like they've done something wrong and being made to feel like that from the statements that the government's made but also feeling like they are not part of society, they're not valued, that they're not viable, that they've not contributed properly over the years, therefore now, you know, you're cast out in the cold. The emotional toll is incredibly hard on people. And that's what's been most heartbreaking of all. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we'll be back with Rachel and Chris in a minute, but first... The Human Rights Select Committee is a cross-party committee of members of both the House of Lords and the House of Commons who work together to look at issues of human rights. Among their members is the brilliant Lord Dubbs, uh, an amazing campaigner of refugee rights and also has the name of a grime artist. He should definitely be a grime artist. Uh, And there's also uh, Lord Brazabon of Tara, who I'm pretty certain is a minor Game of Thrones character. Anyway, uh, this week they released their report entitled Black People, Racism and Human Rights, which I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear mostly said that racial inequality is rising, not falling in the UK. What, you say? How could that be the case in a place that constantly swears it's not racist while repeatedly engaging in systematic and overt racism? I know, right? It's a shock, I tell you. Because if someone says their country isn't racist, it just definitely isn't. You know, in the same way the Nazis were definitely socialists because they said so in their name. And Claudia Winkleman is obviously a superhero that was bitten by a radioactive mollusk. Definitely. Now, there are lots of very concerning things in the report, including the rise in young black people aged 10 to 17 years that are getting increasingly stopped by the police, um, as well as the rise in rates of deaths during childbirth for black women, while the rate for deaths in childbirth overall has fallen. These and the other areas it mentions are really upsetting examples of legislation not affecting assumptions and racist biases that lead to black people having worse treatment in society. And the report says there kind of needs to be fewer reports into racial injustice and more actual action to actually tackle it. There have been eight parliamentary reports into racism and human rights since 2010. So you kind of think if reports were the key, then racism in Britain would have been fixed 20 times over by now. As well as those eight, there were specific reports about the Windrush scandal. You remember when Smokerface Amber Rudd made a teeny admin error and deported loads of people who had a right to live in Britain. I mean, my admin errors usually end with me sending a follow-up email to say sorry at worst, whereas Amber Rudd's led to death, poverty and her getting a Times radio show. Ugh, justice. There was also Lammy's report on the criminal justice system, the McGregor Smith review on the work sector, the Angiolini review on deaths in police custody and the race disparity report in 2017 about everything. Yet, racial inequality is definitely worse. So, are reports the thoughts and prayers of the UK Parliament in terms of dealing with things? Well, obviously, uh, that's not just it, because there's many other factors, including a Prime Minister who's made more racist comments than he's had kids. And then there's the EHRC, who received some pretty damning criticism in the Select Committee report. 
The Equality and Human Rights Commission is the non-departmental public body in England and Wales that is responsible for the enforcement of equality and non-discrimination laws. Well, the Select Committee report says the EHRC has been unable to adequately provide leadership and gain trust in tackling racial inequality in the protection and promotion of human rights. Which is pretty brutal when you consider that that is the one job they have. This view isn't uncommon about the EHRC and many have had concerns about it since it was set up in 2007 by the then Labour government who amalgamated all the other equality enforcement commissions together or as you might put it, lumping all the minorities into one easy to ignore underfunded home. Race, gender and disability are covered by the EHRC as well as age, sexual orientations and religion. But previously all of those categories had their own specially funded commissions and there was the Commission for Racial Equality which had a budget of £90 million just to tackle race issues across the political spectrum. But now, in contrast, the EHRC has a current budget of £17.1 million to deal with everything. It's really something when dealing with racial inequality isn't sufficient because of budgets due to racial inequality. There's also no black commissioners on the EHRC board, which seems bonkers on a board that isn't even made up of MPs and so has an even more vast selection of BAME representatives it could have working with them. There is only one person of colour on the commission altogether, which is really dodgy for a commission supposed to tackle racial inequality. And that one person, Pavita Cooper, failed to declare her donations of thousands of pounds to the Conservative Party just before she was given her appointment on the board. You know, the Conservatives, the party that decide what major appointments the EHRC have. You know, the party the EHRC conveniently keep refusing to do an investigation into the Islamophobia of. Maybe it's just not worth spending their limited budget on something most people could say is definitely there without much effort at all. Maybe that's it. I guess it'd be like spending thousands of pounds on a report as to whether I've had crisps today when there's clearly crisp remnants around my mouth and on my jumper and I happily tell everyone I know that I've definitely had some crisps while I'm looking for some more crisps. This week, the EHRC released their second major report in the last few weeks following the one into anti-Semitism in Labour. The Commission looked into unequal pay at the BBC and surprisingly concluded that there was no discrimination at all against women. But they did only examine 10 cases and none of those ones were ones where the BBC were forced to make payouts to women who had made complaints about their wages being much lower than male colleagues. Again, it's a bit like doing a study into whether or not I've had crisps by only looking at someone I don't know who doesn't like crisps and has never ever heard of crisps. Former journalist Carrie Grace, who won back pay and apology in 2018 after resigning as BBC China editor when she realised she was getting loads less than her male colleagues, uh, she said that the report was a complete and utter whitewash. Much like many of the EHRC's racial inequality efforts then too. So, as you probably guessed, uh, there's unlikely to be any changes to any of this while the government are in charge, or based on the current Labour dismissal of complaints from BAME members of racism within the party, if they were in charge either. Hopefully the report will keep the conversation in the news and maybe, just maybe, they'll either be an independent group who'll be able to enable action within Parliament and beyond or the EHRC will be reformed to actually work. But it's a big unlikely hope and there's honestly more chance of Claudia Winkleman stepping in, firing seaweed and shells at all offenders till they stop before accidentally being eaten by someone at the seaside. And now, back to Chris and Rachel. I mean, does it, it must feel like a personal attack in a way, because, you know, every time that Rishi Sunak makes one of these big statements and we're supporting even more people and we've extended the furlough, oh, we've extended self-employed debt. And since March now, he's consistently ignored everyone who's been excluded. I mean, um, you know, Chris sort of mentioned he's, he, you know earlier about, mate, he's just hoping the government haven't noticed that maybe, but it's... It can't just be ignorance anymore. It must almost feel personal. I mean, is it 
can it be blamed on Rishi Sunak's complaint that it's too complicated to help people? Can can yeah. that be, you know, is, is that a reasonable excuse? My, my stance on this has changed over the months. I'm a lawyer by vocation. That's how I was trained. I deal in facts. When I started heading up this campaign and being a, a voice box for it, I was very patient and very diplomatic. And I truly believe that as soon as this problem was brought to their attention and we evidenced it um, and they were right, you know, it is complicated. It is complex. There's a whole range of people that have been excluded. Nobody's disputing that. But the government has done very complex things through this pandemic. You know, we've built hospitals in days, although, to be fair, the army had a good hand in that as well. And, um, you know, the PPE contracts, let's not even get started on that. You know, supply chain, you know, very complex things have been achieved. Um, it's debatable how well they've been achieved. And I'm sure you cover that in other episodes. But where there's a will, there's a way. And the problem that we have here is once the problem was evidenced, and I've watched the Chancellor sit in front of the Treasury Select Committee and be absolutely grilled uh, well, no, let me take that back. They did a good enough job of grilling him. They could have done more. All of the MPs cross-party could have done more. Um, let's be clear on that. One of the things that was very disappointing for me, and I'm sure many other lay citizens, is why has there not been more of a cross-party approach through this pandemic? There would have been the perfect time to put politics aside. This is a moral issue. It's about doing the right thing with integrity and honesty and transparency. That's what's been disappointing. For whatever reason, politics has got in the way here. And again, disappointingly, whilst we've seen a lot of U-turns from this government so far, this has not been one of them. And it could have been. And that's why I come round to the point about public perception. I think that's what's damaged us the most in this campaign, that what, what the Chancellor and other senior ministers have done very well is discredit this community in the narrative that it's used and the language that it's used and the things that it's said every time it's been asked direct questions. Um, <laughs> hilariously or not, the answer they normally come up with when asked about the excluded community is they go on to tell us how many people they have helped and how much that has cost the government. And in doing so, they absolutely ignore the question. And, um, you know, you, you'll know yourself sitting watching what goes on in Parliament. There's then no right to come back with a follow up question. It just moves on to the next thing. Incredibly disappointing as a taxpayer sat at home watching that carry on. It's like a pantomime. And, and to have them able to dodge these questions. We finally had Keir Starmer asking in PMQs this week. And, you know, over the months, we've had good conversations with Annalise Dodds and with Ed Miliband. We know they're supportive of the excluded UK cause. But the job of Labour is to hold the government to account. And it was only this week that Keir Starmer did that for the first time in PMQs. Um, Boris Johnson gave a very disappointing answer. Not disappointing to us because we've been watching these answers come out time and time and time and time again over the months. But, you know, this is the stage that we're at now, fortunately, and I'm glad to be here talking to you about it today. They have to be held to account. If they're going to stick with the policies that were put in place around those support schemes, they need to sit with the whites of their eyes, facing the people who they've left behind and give good reasons and auditable reasons and transparent reasons as to why those policies are still justifiable. <laughs> I would say the reason they're not doing that is because they're not justifiable and they don't have good reason for excluding these people. And the bottom line probably is they just don't want to spend any more money on this particular issue. But there is, there is money there to spend. That's not the issue either. 
and you know we don't want to go into a big date debate over macroeconomics although i'm sure some of your listeners would love to but that's not the issue and it's and it's it's disingenuous to use that as an excuse as well there is no excuse for being here eight months on with hardworking UK taxpayers excluded from these schemes, rendered ineligible through no fault of their own. And I won't rest until I've seen senior ministers in this country held to account on that. And the other reason of interest, I'm sure, to your listeners is if we sit, stand back from it and say economically what would be the right thing to do now to allow us to move forward as a nature, uh, as a nation, to rescue our economy in very hard months ahead. Well, you need to keep unemployment low and we need to keep people off the welfare state <laughs> and we need to get people spending again. If these grants were given to these people who should have had them from right from the beginning, all they're going to do is pay off their debts. They're just going to pay off their bills. It goes back into the system. It gets them back in a place, hopefully, and that's when we could really do a great job with them, gets them back into an emotional, mental state where they can contribute again to the economy. Being excluded is actually creating economically a disaster for this country. It makes no economic sense. Rachel, as you mentioning there, the government ignoring this affects things in the long term. It affects the whole economy because that's three million people that can no longer contribute and people and people that aren't paying off their um, debt. Also, you know, surely, and I don't want to presume people's uh, political, um, you know, reasons or their voting reasons, but surely that's three million people that won't want to vote for this government again. So isn't it quite narrow minded from them in that sense? Yeah. And uh, I mean, to me, that's been one of the most heartbreaking things. Um, I referred earlier around shame and guilt and disappointment and despair and all of that. We have a lot of people that voted for this government and they voted for this government because they believed they would be supported, um, you know, not expecting a pandemic, but they believed what they were told, particularly in this small business sector. And the disappointment that people feel to be um, ignored and cast aside and dismissed by the government, absolutely, they will have lost voters. We have people saying all the time, I will never vote for this government again. We obviously have people that didn't vote for the government who say, well, what do you expect? You know, when you vote Tory, this is what we get. Um, and then that would usually be linked in with like they only care about themselves. And lots of discussion goes into, you know, contracts being awarded to people uh, with family connections and you know it brings up all these issues which is why I said you know for, for us trying to champion the campaign we've tried to be apolitical we've tried to say people before politics okay it doesn't matter who you voted for or who you'd vote for again they need to do the right thing this is an unprecedented situation but I think the bigger problem in what you've referred to is we're not expecting an election for many years. If we had an election just around the corner, I dare say they would be more interested in the numbers, right? But we've struggled from that as well. It's like we've had the perfect storm of issues that have held us back. There's been public perception. There's been, for whatever reason, the Chancellor not wanting to look at the economic long-term impact, maybe not wanting to lose face um, and have these policies questioned or overturned, and then just discord and disconnect within the political environment. Um, we established an APPG, um, and it's got 270 members. It's the largest APPG in history. So massive cross-party support for rectifying this issue. 
Even the APPG has not been able to get the Chancellor and the Treasury to the table to solutionise. And, and so we look at it and go, we've done a bloody good job of this campaign. You know, we are very proud of what we've achieved and the momentum as lay people. And, um, you know, as I say, we're not going to give up. But if even a cross-party alliance can't bring a Chancellor to the table, what does that say about the democratic system that we're living in? Or back to your point, the time that we're living in, you know, with a majority government, with an election so far away, they can just kick these issues to the long grass if they want to. They shouldn't be able to. And that's where we need the opposition to be really strong. But I really believe that the power of the excluded UK campaign is about exposing the need for people to have a voice. You know, I think what's missing in this country is a union of the people. And um, it would have been so much easier if that had already existed at the start of this. And we could have gone to that union and said, uh, hey, help us. We've, we've suffered what we believe is a social injustice. How, how would you normally approach this? It doesn't exist. And that has placed these people in a very vulnerable situation, basically at the whims of a handful of decision makers who, if they want to say no, they can say no and they're not being held to account. Uh, Chris, um, you mentioned that you've got uh, some other examples of people that have been affected by this. And I just wonder if you'd um, give us a few of those. Yes. Um, one more self-employed, then I'll go on to the employed as well. Um, of the three million, there's around about-ish two million self-employed and one million employed. Um, and the employed are excluded as well, which I'll come to. Janice McIver, she's been um, worked as a Police in, in the police and army for 21 years, started a self-employment in 1819. Because of startup costs, she hardly made any money whatsoever in that year, uh, you know, if anything. She had a pretty good year in 1920, a second year. But because Rishi Sunak is basing everything on 1819 and the previous two years, um, she got zero in help. Now, this is a typical case that uh, Rachel touched on about a newly self-employed. I mean, this is historic information now. Um, it's years ago they're basing it on. Um, so you know, that's one. She's a driving instructor, isn't she, Chris? Driving a driving instructor. instructor. Yes. We have lots of driving instructors, whole whole group yeah. of them who got knocked and the, out. And the reason why uh, Sunak is, uh, you know, giving Janice McIver a total sum of zero help is because he thinks it's possibly a fraud risk. Uh, I maybe leave that to Rachel until later on, but you know the amount of fraud that's been going on elsewhere is just ridiculous. But he thinks an awful lot of people self-employed are going to commit fraud, and that's the reason why they can't use the 1920. And still, 18 months, eight months later, they still can't use 1920 tax return, which is ridiculous. Moving on to the employed, um, Julie Weatherall, she left her job on the 13th of March this year. And she started a brand new one the following Monday. Typical, you'd think, you know, that's what you do. You, you leave one job, you start another one on the 16th of March. Because of the timing and with a new employer not getting on the pay-as-you-earn system in time, she was denied furlough. As far as the government's concerned, she doesn't exist. So she got absolutely zero. She ended up having to go to a GP. She won't mind me telling you this because I've spoken to her. Um, she went to a GP to get medication for anxiety and panic attacks and such like. And that's just 
but I can't say anymore. That's just such a bad, you know, bad situation. Um, just another self-employed, Kevin. Kevin Howe, he's a carpenter. Um, he can't furlough himself because he changed from a limited company to self-employed, again, at the wrong time, in order to do with this 1920, uh, 19, sorry, 2019 to 20 issue. Um, and he's fallen through the gaps, um, as they say. Um, Kirsty Pierce, um, she's the learning support assistant and uh, she was having a child. And because she wasn't able to get furlough uh, and she wasn't able to take um, maternity leave, she gets absolutely nothing as well. People on maternity leave have had a really bad from the government um, and there's a whole separate campaign for them. Um, you know, if you want to read up on that. Molly Ann Trumbull, she's a company director, and typically um, with directors, they have a certain amount of pay, and then they get dividends, quite legal, absolutely legal, that's where it's always happened, but you can only get a furlough on the pay element, which is, you know, typically pretty low, so the dividends are just, are just completely, completely ignored, um, and it's too complicated for the government to work that out, apparently. Um, Ollie Sloan, um, he earns just over £50,000. Now, the cut-off point for the self-employed is 50000 Anything over that, and you get absolutely nothing. Um, as opposed to employees, <laughs> uh, you could earn anything you want as an employee. Um, so there's a, another example of the, um, of the disparity. Um, Robert Durick, <laughs> this is a really bad one again he just made a simple mistake on his tax return he completed his tax return um, and he said he was employed when he was really self-employed so basically he filled the wrong form in on his tax return oh. the wrong section he tried to get back to the inland revenue to say i've made a mistake here's the information they wouldn't let him because it was after the 23rd of march when the scheme was issued so he wasn't allowed to correct a mistake because of that, he's been a bricklayer for 30 years. Because of that, he gets zero. Um, I think I'll pause there because I'm not getting a bit annoyed at just reading his back again. <laughs> There's a few really crazy examples. I have to say, I, I get annoyed, Chris. I share that, but I also get very emotional. Um, and when I hear, you know, these are real people who we've, we've come to know and love them because uh, as a community we've come together these are real hard-working people and even going through the job list we put up a post one day in the group and there was just thousands of different amazing incredible jobs people that fueled this country and this economy in normal times but so diverse and all of them was this one shared it's like a, a cry it's like why me what have I done wrong and you know you go from my daughter walked in and I was crying about this one day and what's wrong mummy and the only thing I could say to her was these people had good lives you know lives we can be proud of living in a civilized western world and they were going about their business and they were doing their jobs and they were contributing to society and then bang the pandemic came hit Rishi Sunak said don't worry nobody will be left behind and we'll all stand shoulder to shoulder as a nation and that is not what happened and these people carpenters driving instructors bricklayers hairdressers beauticians whatever it was that was their profession they then have to sit and look around them and say well everybody else has been helped everybody else has been supported why not me 
And, and, and I referred to this at the start of the call, but for us trying to head up this campaign, that's a question we can't answer them. And all we've ever been able to say is we are sorry. You know, we're really sorry that this has happened to you and we're determined to fight for it and we will do what we can, but we're not the decision makers. <laughs> if I was, this would have been sorted some time ago because we're just talking about pure justice and equality here. You know, it wasn't unprecedented and it still is a pandemic that we're all going to reel from for years and years. It's going to take time to repair the damage. But when I hear their names and when they are taken off the page, they're not stats. They're not collateral damage or dead weight, which are other phrases that he has used to describe them over the months. They are real people with families and lives and the mental health toll has been absolutely massive. And I want retrospective compensation for them. I want them to be put on the same footing as all the other taxpayers who've been fairly supported and have had help to meet their living expenses during this difficult time. But when that's done, and it must be done, for us to be a country that we can be proud of. When that's done, we still have to help them because the emotional damage is gonna take a long time to go away and it's gonna build time for them to trust again in decision makers and policy makers because the chancellor should not have stood and made that promise that they would do whatever it takes and then three or four months later, turn his back. That, that should never have been allowed to happen. So I think probably one of the most important questions I could ask you is how can people support uh, the campaign? What should we be doing to make even more noise about this? Um, and, and where can listeners go to to help? And also, if any listeners are part of the excluded, um, where can they go to get more information? Well, I want your listeners to understand from, from hearing our conversation today is that this affects somebody you know. It's one in 10 of UK workforce. It's a, a population similar to the size of Wales. So that gives you a sense of the scale here and why it's discriminatory. If the Chancellor had stood up and said, we're going to support everybody except for people in Wales, then clearly that would have been discriminatory because it's been spread out around the country, spread out around diverse sectors, different in industries, different walks of life, in exactly the way we've discussed. It's been quieter. It's gone under the radar. God knows we've done our best. The thing we've struggled with the most is public perception versus the government narrative. So I, I really want your listeners to take away that this is unfair. It's unjust for all the reasons we've discussed. It's part policy edges and arbitrary rules that could have been fixed and haven't yet been fixed. We want them to be fixed. But most importantly, ask yourself, who is it in your social circle that is suffering this? People tell us that they post on Facebook or they speak to their friends and family and they don't get the sympathy and the empathy that they deserve. And that's because we're fighting the narrative and we're fighting some of the media. There are sectors of the media that have still not reported on this. That's a conversation for another day, right? Our media is not impartial. Um, but if, 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 if you've got a family member that's going through this or somebody that lives next door, then please ask them how they are, just like you asked us at the start of this podcast and genuinely care. And when they tell you that they're in financial strife and they've been pushed into debt and they feel hurt and they feel left behind, then please care. Show them some genuine compassion. Be a human being. Because if you're okay, if you're coming out of this pandemic okay and you're still head above water, you need to still remember and have empathy that there are people who are not. 
and some of these people have also lost loved ones. Some of the people have been through the virus themselves. They have ill health. Some of them were shielding and that's been their problem. So just pure empathy is what we need more of. On a practical level, obviously, we have the website, excludeduk.org. Um, .org.uk. I just said that a hundred times. Um, yeah, you can go to our website, get lots of information. Um, we have a group. So if you're excluded yourself, you can join us on our Facebook group. We have fundraising going on. We're very proud to have now funded mental health support because there's obviously 12, 16 week wait on the NHS for mental health support and our members needed it fast. So you can make donations. And more than anything... Twitter. Oh, absolutely. Twitter, I mean, we're on Twitter. Twitter. We're active on Twitter and on Facebook. Uh, you can follow all of our social media profiles. But more than anything else, we just want the public to get behind this campaign. They can also write to their MPs, which we've been doing consistently since March, or their councillors, and really add their voices and uh, tell them that they think this is wrong as well. Because we have not had enough support from the general public, and that's held us back. Thank you tons to Chris and Rachel for having time to talk to me. And I really, really hope that some support uh, for all those who've been excluded comes very, very soon. Um, if you are in the same abandoned ship uh, or you would like to support the campaign and those who've been affected, then please do head to excludeduk.org. Uh, and they're also Excluded UK on Twitter and on Facebook too. Um, who else to get on the show? I'm still very keen to get a more diverse selection of interviewees if I can, but do send over all suggestions to them, usual places of at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, or just email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you can scroll the suggested interviewee's name across your box of belongings that you definitely would naturally have as you resign from a job that you definitely wanted to leave, so that photographers who just happen to be nearby see you carry it out, and I see the name in all of the pictures in all of the press except i'll assume that's what's in the contents of the box you've gone all john doe in seven and i'll call the police so as always it's probably just best to email isn't it and that's all on this week's partly political broadcast podcast thank you for listening and oh wait what's that trundling over the hill that's right a parpol bro hot pole gus fact uh what with old dumb cum fucking off um it even if it wasn't for the reasons he should have fucked off for ages ago. Uh, what was the best UK political resignation ever? Well, in at third place is Lord Anthony Lampton, who looked unbelievably like a mad scientist villain from the 50s comic book and was a Conservative MP from the 40s to the early 70s. That is, until he was victim of the first ever tabloid stitch-up where he was filmed in bed smoking a joint with a naked prostitute, all caught on a camera hidden inside a small teddy bear. It's just amazing. I mean, that is not even an option I knew they had at Build-A-Bear. Uh, Lampton couldn't believe people were disgusted by his behaviour because he hadn't realised it was 1973 and not nowadays where everyone would just go oh he's acting prime ministerial isn't he instead Lord Inappropriate Tone said to one interviewer surely all men frequent whores and it is nice to hear of a Tory spending money to fuck themselves for once instead of the country he then quit his job moved to Tuscany and became known for legendary parties and was regularly referred to as the King of Chiantishire which I assume was a mispronunciation in at number two is the very famous story of John Profumo, you probably know this one, a Conservative MP who looked like a face drawn on an egg and who was forced to resign after he lied to the Commons about his relationship with a former cool girl who was also two-timing him with a Russian spy. Maybe she was just working towards averting the future Cold War by getting all sides to come together. Ugh. Anyway, it led to a decade of political gossip leading all the front pages and the downfall of the Macmillan government too. The best bit though involved a judge asking a minister to have his penis measured so they could work out if it was he who was the headless man 
being fellated by the Duchess of Argyle in a photo in one of the papers. Of course, if they were headless, that might explain why the Duchess was kindly providing them with some. Hmm. In at number one in this very lewd Parpolbro Hot Polgos fact so far is former Labour Minister John Stonehouse looking very much like he ran a chintz store but in reality was in serious credit trouble, having an affair and trying to hide his past as a Czech spy. So he just faked his own death in 1974, you know, as you do. He left all his clothes and passport on a bench on Miami Beach, leading the papers to think he'd been eaten by sharks, even though I'd have gone for turned invisible or shrunk down really small. It's amazing how unimaginative they can be. Uh, the Commons had a minute of silence for him while he was in Hawaii having an absolutely lovely time. And then he was found later that year in Australia, having been mistaken for Lord Lucan and returned to the UK, where he still stayed as an MP because having been dead, he'd finally have fitted right in with most of the ghouls already there. I'm pretty sure he was just abiding by DWP policy, to be honest. Stonehouse didn't actually resign until he was sentenced for fraud two years later, and in many ways it's sad that he did, as with that ability to bareface lie, he was perfectly qualified for government. That's this week's Pop Bro Hot Podcast Fact, and if you enjoyed it, or any few seconds of this show, even the adverts, then please do tell everyone who's ever existed, alive or fake dead and hiding in Hawaii, to tune in and subscribe. If you can, please bung a pound to the Kofi Patreon or Acast supporter site, and give the show a nice sparkling five-star review on the Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Acast, Castbox, or just graffitied across your neighbour's wall. No, they won't mind. They'll love it, I promise. Cheers, big ears to Acast, my brother last sceptic Cat Day and Katie Coxall for all their help. And this will be back next week when Boris Johnson announces an extension to his own self-isolation, ensuring that it will continue till at least the Christmas break before not returning in January and ministers having to nervously keep saying that he's doing great while people keep putting photos on social media of a man who looks exactly like Boris Johnson in South America, constantly trying to eat or shag things. Bye! This week's show was sponsored by Cummings Clever Bants Guide, nickname special. A surefire way to find the best bants about those who say mean things about you, like grow up and don't eat that or you'll choke. Got a sister? Why not call her, um, stinky sister sister? Yeah, that's really imaginative, yeah. Or, um, you want to insult Steve? What about, um, Captain Steve Poo? Yeah, that'll really get him. Take that, Steve. Find Cummings Clever Bants Guide, nickname special, for geniuses aged five to nine years of age. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.